conversation the last several weeks has been around God's wish list. Exploring what, what is it that God would want from us. What, what we consider is that there are those that, that we love and what we want to do is give them what they want. Um, I was with a group of men Friday morning called the Friday Morning Men. Interesting creative name, isn't it? And uh, we were talking some about this. And one of the things um, that we could really relate to well is uh, a tendency. We all had a story about how we gave a vacuum cleaner to our spouse. And that really was not a good gift. was not high on their wish list or even times when we gave flowers when really what the gift they wanted was simply to put your dishes in the dishwasher. Um, Ways that we've learned, it's good news, it's really good news, ways that we've learned what it is that those that we love really do love. And even learn then to give them what they love. And that we would do the same with God. You know, d- discerning what God loves, what He desires, what is on His list, and then we get to give that back to Him. And that's uh, where, where we are and what um, our passage today will lead us to something that God really wants from us. And wants from us from those who are... You may have been in this conversation and been saying, you know, I don't have anything that God would want. I don't have anything that God would would really desire that would be on His wish list. And what we'll see in this passage is that that may be exactly the place we need to be. Because what God wants simply is, is us. Mess and all. What, what, what He wants, really, as we read through the passage, is a broken and contrite spirit. A broken and contrite heart. He, he wants a heart that's broken, not because that it doesn't work, but because once it's broken, then it's ready to receive. It's open to the elements, in a sense. It's not sound and strong and impenetrable, but it's ready to receive from God. Not bringing what are our best and brightest, but bringing all that we are. Broken, contrite, and humble. It's really what we call, the fancy church word is repentance. It's when, when we change our direction. And when, when we are, are trying to go our way. When we are going the way of the world, when we indeed are God, repentance is that we turn and say, we're going to go your way, God. And that is what we see, what we'll see in our passage with David. As he lets go of the kingdom of David and seeks to follow the kingdom of of God. It's really a change in his, the very orientation of his life. Now, 
Um, David, King David, the one who wrote our psalm, Psalm 51, we'll, we'll get there in a minute, it's page 452. But let me tell you the story about David. An important story that helps put, you know, what the situation in his life is that then he wrote this particular psalm. He, uh, he'd been king for a while. And when you're king for a while, you begin to uh, feel really important. And being king, you have a lot of power. And David made a really bad decision at about midway point of him being king. He made the decision that he was going to stay back from war. He was going to stay at home. The troops were going to go out. They were going to fight the battle. A real problem for a king to be at home when the troops are fighting. I mean, the king's not supposed to be on the front lines, but he is supposed to be you know, in the back, all dressed and royal and regal, there to encourage and push the troops forward. But he decided to stay at home. And while he was at home, he was on his back patio. And while on his back patio, he, well, the king's patio, the king's roof of his house is, is the tallest one. So it means it looks uh, down upon all the others. And so King David, while he should have been at war, uh, hanging out on the back patio, looked down over Bathsheba in Bathsheba's house. And Bathsheba was on her rooftop. And I know it's sort of weird. We don't understand. Uh, you may understand. It's not what we do. But they kept their bathtubs on the top of their houses. Because it was a good place to store the water. And in the heat, it would warm it up. And so Bathsheba was taking a bath. I don't think David had binoculars, but maybe he did. And if he had, he would have gotten them out. And watched Bathsheba. And what we're told is that when David did that, he desired her. And that's a real problem when kings have desires. Because when kings have desires and everybody else is out to war, kings get what they want. And so King David wanted Bathsheba, and so he had her. And we're told he knew her, in the biblical way, so that Bathsheba was then with David's child. Now, King David, in, in the midst of that, found out that Bathsheba was pregnant with his child. And I wish we could say that then he you know, stopped the cycle there, confessed and tried to make it right, but that's not what he did. And again, David had been king for a long time. He had, uh, he had made his decision, you know, he's going to walk with God. But, you know, it's really easy for that turn from the way of self to the way of God to sort of steadily, slowly, especially if you're king, to turn back the other way and you just not notice it. And so what King David did in order to cover up his sin, the mess that he'd made, was he said, why don't I bring Uriah, who is Bathsheba's husband, 
back from the front lines. Let me give him a little R&R. You know, maybe even have, uh, you know, give him an award or something. Bring him back home. Let him, you know, just come back and hang out with Bathsheba. And then if he hangs out with Bathsheba, then, you know, won't really know if it's my child or his child. So that'll just sort of cover it up. Well, Uriah gets back and being a man of character, he says, no, I cannot be with my wife and enjoy her in that way while all my brothers are fighting on the front lines. So Uriah foils David's plan. So David says, well, let's... Have a banquet. Uriah, come on over to my house. You know, let's eat it up. Maybe, you know, Jerusalem was playing Jericho that afternoon. Now we'll watch the game. He gets Uriah drunk, hoping that Uriah will lose enough touch with what was going on, that then he'll get Uriah, then his defenses will be down, and he will be with his wife. But even in that state, Uriah refuses be with Bathsheba. Went out of plan C. He sends Uriah back to the front lines with a note for Joab, the commander. And on the note, David has written to the commander of the army, put Uriah on the front lines let him fight the battle, and then pull everybody else back. So that Uriah will be struck down. And that's what happens. So David, a man we're told, a man that that God has said he is a man after my own heart, has now gotten in this spiral of lies where he abuses his power, commits adultery, and murder. Would have worked perfectly if it hadn't been for God. God raises up Nathan, who's a prophet. Prophets aren't necessarily people that speak the future, but they speak God's word in the moment. And so Nathan goes to David, tells him a little story, sort of brings him in, reels him into the story, to then sock him with the truth. Say, you have sinned against God. You've abused the very position that he's put you in. And you have caused destruction in people's lives. And it's at that point that David pens the psalm that we're going to read. At that point where David is face to face with his own sin, his own brokenness, the the huge destructive mess that he has caused, it's then face to face with that that God, that, that God brings that to his attention. And it's just then that David is ready to give God the gift that God wants. Because as we'll read, what God wants, that what, what brings pleasure to God 
is when we come to Him with a broken and contrite spirit. With a broken heart. So knowing that story and that encounter with God, now invite you to follow along in Psalm 51. David's word to God after hearing from Nathan. It's 452 in your pew Bible or on the screen. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. When David comes face to face with his own sin and brokenness and his mess, he has no option. He has no option but to cling to the very character of God. The character of God's love. The first words out of his mouth in this psalm are three of the most theologically thick words in all of the scriptures. The the words that that describe that, that character of God, that loving character of God, that sacrificial loving character of God that, that, that can never act except out of love. And and whose love has no bound, who is what is endless and great, mercy and grace that flows from him. I mean he gets all three of them in the first word, in the first verse. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. It's actually three different biblical words, Hebrew words. The, the words are most are usually translated mercy, love, and grace. And, and usually in Hebrew, in Hebrew poetry, they just pile words on top of each other that really aren't meant to, to, to give clear distinctions. It's just meant to all pile into one, just to say, this is who God is. This is what this love, mercy, grace is in terms of the character of God. And the only place that David can turn in the midst of such outright disobedience and sin. But for us in English, in the English language, you know, we, we want a little more clarity. What's the difference between love and grace and mercy? You know, what, what are those distinctions? Well, let, let me just give you three definitions for love. One for love, one for grace, one for mercy. Those of you that are note takers, this is the kind of thing, you know, where you, you like to scribble. Love, what he says is God's love, is that God is committed to our benefit no matter the cost to him. He is committed to doing what is best for us no matter the cost. And of course we need to look no further than the cross to understand that. That's hard to believe, but you know, David had no option there. He had no option but to believe God was willing to love him even in the midst of that. Mercy is that God is committed to what's best for us even though we don't deserve it. That He's committed to what's best for us even though we don't deserve it. And again, you know, David just had nowhere to turn. But, but to mercy. And in grace, in a sense, it's mercy on steroids. That God's committed to what's best for us even though we deserve the opposite. Even though... Not just that we don't deserve it, but that we deserve the opposite. And so in that first verse, what, what, what David is, is experiencing, he's coming face to face with his sin. Face to face with his mess. And, and he has no option but to fall on his knees. No option there but to cry out to what he knows he's been taught throughout history, throughout his people's history, that God is loving and gracious and merciful. He, he sees his sin and he falls on his face because he has no leg to stand on. He has nowhere to turn. He has nothing to bring to God. The only option he has is to hit bottom and look up. It's all that he has. He has blown it with a capital B and brought destruction on a family and upon the very name of the king. He hits bottom 
and has nowhere to look but up. And it's in that position of being broken and open and looking up that God says, that's the gift I desire. It's it's in verse 6. You desire truth in the inward being. Now it's too bad for David. Too bad for Uriah and Bathsheba. That it took such atrocity to make him hit bottom. So that he'd look up. But it was there. that God said, that's the gift that's acceptable to me. A heart that is humble and open that I can flow into. Now you don't have to face such atrocity to be there. It could just be the pain and anguish of life. Been in conversations, spent a little time the last several days with the Killians. A number of you have too, because they're in the process of adopting a child. Child was born Thursday. And the birth mother and birth father and birth family have yes, no, maybe, yes, no, maybe. And that's just in the first three hours, let alone the last three days. And in, in conversations with, with, with Beth and Mark over and over again, they say, you know, th- this has just stripped us empty. We have nothing to hold on to but Jesus. And, and the way that He loves us supernaturally and through the love of those that are around us. There's just absolutely nothing we can do but trust in Him. But, but burrow ourselves deeper into His loving embrace. So it doesn't take the atrocity of our own sin to, to just be broken and open. It could just be the pain. It could be the anguish. Or, or maybe, better yet, just the overwhelming gratitude of God's gift, of God's love that... that Puts us in the place of turning upward to Him. Open, honest, and broken. The good news with the Killians is that the mom signed the papers this morning at 8 o'clock. My, so that you aren't uh, hanging on that. I uh, had my phone uh, with me this morning. But I didn't feel like pulling it out of my robe during the middle of first service to hear. But in between... Uh, services heard that. And it's in that place. It's in that place of brokenness before God that David says, this is where you got to give me the joy. you got to do it all. I mean, there's, there wasn't a single thing that David said, here's what I'll do. You gotta cleanse me. You gotta make me whiter than snow. You've gotta purify me. You're the one that has to fill me with joy. You've gotta renew that joy. You've gotta do all that work. And then, only then, will I be filled and ready to share that brokenness, to share that grace 
with others around me who are broken and in need of grace. That's it's not until verse 13. Then, after what you have done with me, after you have done your work, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. But you're the one that has to deliver me from my bloodshed. You're the one that leads me into salvation so that then I'm opened to truly sing praise. One of the reasons that we flip things around in the service and put the sermon at the beginning, for those of you that sort of wondered, how'd you miss all the singing at the beginning? It was so that we, we confess our sin after this and, and we receive that forgiveness. And then the, the joy that we're singing it isn't just because it's a familiar song that we like. It's not just an, an emotional event, but it is a song that we're singing because we have been reminded and experienced anew the grace of Jesus Christ in our lives and we can do nothing more. We can't help but sing of His joy. It was a number of years ago, gosh, 23 years ago now, that I had a a real encounter with Psalm 51. I was uh, a graduate, I graduated from college, and I had a a month um, to do whatever I wanted as a college graduate, before I went off with life ministry, the the campus crusade in uh, Kenya to show the Jesus film and do some other stuff. Well, being a college graduate with a month of free time is much like a king staying home from war. And much uh, like David, certainly not to the extent, but got myself in a couple messes. A couple messes that were clear to me. They were sin. They were disobedience. They were wrong. Got on the plane, you know, to go on this great mission trip to to Kenya. And as I got on the plane, I'm like, what am I doing? I am a, a loser, you know, the capital L. You know, how in the world are you going to be used by God on some mission trip? Within a month's time, you just totally blow all of your sanctification. You don't have anything worth giving. Now, it's a, you might want to just stay at home. Because it's going to be a waste of time for you to go on some mission trip. So I got to uh, Kenya, and we had a training time there at the base of Mount Kilimanjaro. And we were given a little booklet, a little training booklet, and said, you know, go out and, and, and just walk through this booklet, this Bible study and stuff like that, you know, and, and take some time, take an hour and just go through that. I don't remember if it was the first or if it was the second passage, but... I, I, Early on, Psalm 51 was the psalm that we were to read. I never finished the rest of the book. I just hung right there. I said, wait a minute. What is David saying here? He's not doing anything. 
He's not offering anything to God but his sin. He's just totally trusting that God will forgive him. And I didn't do what David did. And, and he's just saying, God, you, you gotta do the work. You gotta change me. You gotta create me a clean heart. You gotta make me pure. And you gotta then send me out back into ministry. You gotta be the one to send me out to teach sinners their ways. Like, that's exactly what I need. I think this psalm was only written for me for this day. And I had for me what the Old Testament is called an Ebenezer time. You know, in the Old Testament, the, the people of God, would they, would they would build rocks and sort of mark the place that they encountered God in such a real way. And that's what happened. I've got my own little pile of rocks, my own little Ebenezer at the, mount, the, the foot of Mount Kilimanjaro in Kenya. And there hit me more than any other that God did not want what limited intellect I had. He didn't want what limited abilities I might have. He didn't want my my holiness or purity. He didn't want any of the natural abilities, capabilities that that didn't care if I was a college graduate or not. Didn't care that I was going to give my life to to missions and going to be. He didn't care about any of that. What he wanted simply was my heart, my spirit to be open wide for him. That's what he wanted. And then the rest would flow from that. Even the the last month, this is, last six months really, this has come to roost again within my soul. Because I've, I've actually cut out time that I would spend in preparing a sermon. And instead of preparing during that time, I would be praying through the sermon. Just sitting with God through it all. Saying, you don't don't want it, it put together just so perfectly as much as you want me to be before you. I'm willing to bet a number of you have Ebenezer's. You got places where you encountered this grace and mercy of God. Or maybe they're all over the world. For some of you, it might even be somewhere even in this room. Where you just were hit flat in the face with the grace and mercy of God that God doesn't want to know how strong or how smart or how good you are. He just wants all of you to be open before Him. To receive so that you're able and ready to receive and let His grace and mercy really pour inside of you. Remember that day. Get back to the the heart of that day and just the, the grace and mercy of that day so that you remember that forgiveness that God gives to us. 
that helps us let go of the self-justification, that helps us let go of the defensive techniques, that helps us let go of all that stuff so that we can be open and honest before God with nothing in between us. Maybe today is that day. Maybe you can look at David and say the same thing I do. I didn't do that. Or maybe you can look at David and say, gosh, I've done that, maybe even a little worse. That doesn't surprise God. It's like it didn't surprise God with David. And David didn't have to go through some list of ways that he could get back into God's good grace. Simply to be open and honest and receive His grace, His mercy, and His love. Maybe today is a day you can take Psalm 51 as your own. Maybe today is the day that you hit bottom and you realize there's nowhere to look but up. Be free. Look up and receive God's grace and God's mercy. Receive His love. It is essential to His character. It is the very gift He desires. He he will not be one to, when you tell Him to go, I told you so. He will say, as He did to David, Welcome home. Welcome home. This is the gift I've wanted all along.